you're listening to another Leveraging Real Estate Podcast. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of the Leveraging Real Estate Podcast. My name is Ryan Corcoran, as always, your host. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, if you're anywhere from New England or <clears throat> New Hampshire, Maine, anywhere around that area, you've probably heard of this guy before. He's got a great podcast. He's got a great social media uh, his name's Axel Rad- at Ragnarsson. How are we doing today, man? I'm doing great. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Looking forward to this. I, I think, uh, you know, I've learned a ton from you. I think the audience will be able to learn a ton from you. Um, and we're, we're pretty close in our, our stories. Um, and so I, I think it'll be cool to, to get you on here and share what you know. Um, so let's just start from the beginning. Um, who are you? Where are you from? And, um, and we'll get into how you got into real estate. Yeah, so I grew up in southern New Hampshire, a very small town called Chester. Um, it's about 30 minutes south of Manchester for anybody that knows southern New Hampshire, which is not many people. But um, but I grew up in New Hampshire and went to college in New Hampshire, and then I moved to Boston after I graduated. And, um, you know, while I was in college, and you know, even to back up further, I always had kind of the entrepreneurial upbringing, was always buying selling stuff to make money. I was flipping baseball cards, electronics, golf clubs, you know, whatever, right? And... Um, started buying and selling cars as to make a little bit more money and that was something that I was doing in college and uh, at some point I was like you know what can I do that's a little bit bigger than this and um, I think I literally Google searched like (laughs) what do wealthy people buy and sell you know and and real estate inevitably kind of came up so I found bigger pockets started learning about real estate and um, I wanted to actually flip houses and uh, this is like my sophomore year of college and the more I was learning about flipping houses, the more I started to learn about passive income and rental real estate and multifamily real estate. And I decided that was a more uh, attractive route to go um, because flipping houses is just really risky and I wanted to get into something that was a little less risky. So I uh, started looking for deals, started trying to find you know off-market, direct-to-seller, small multifamily deals and ended up buying one in college. And um, you know, basically financed that with some private capital through with a private lender and started snowballing that portfolio. And then I graduated school and moved down to Boston and took a job and uh, took a sales job. It was a you know, really good job, great opportunity, growing company, you know, came with some equity, but it was extremely demanding. And originally my plan was, all right, I'm gonna work this job, it's gonna be my W-2, I'm gonna go buy real estate on the side. Even though you know, I knew I didn't really want a job. Like I was like, this is I'm not going to be here for that long. Um, yeah. This is just to get me to a point to where I have enough income coming in to then quit the job that I just took. Mm-hmm. And uh, three days in, I had a seller that got a direct mail piece from me. Uh, he called me while I was at work. Couldn't answer the phone. You know, I got home, listened to his voicemail. It was a 12-unit deal in Manchester, New Hampshire, which was my target market. He, he wanted. He was just trying to give it away. And uh, so I quickly called him back and he's like, oh, you know, I just put in a contract with another with another owner or uh, buyer, I should say. And um, next day went into the office. This is day four with this job. And I said, I just I can't work here. Like I just left six figures on the table yesterday. This is insane. So I was there for three days. And then after that, it was, you know, full time real estate. I got to figure out how to do this full time and Mm -hmm. started focusing on finding great deals, started focusing on bringing in investors and, and trying to 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 you know, creatively structured deals to, to, to just buy deals because they didn't have that much yeah. money. And, um, you know, that was five years ago. And since then, the business has really developed into a true, um, you know, true deal engine. We, we go out there, we do a lot of marketing, as you do, Ryan, to go out and find deals. And, um, and we raise capital to buy those deals. And now we do some deals in Florida. Um, we have a deal out in Indianapolis. We've expanded in a couple of other markets. I'd like to describe our core focus right now was 
central and southern New Hampshire and central Florida because we have great yeah. infrastructure. We've done a lot of deals in those markets. And um, we raise capital from investors to buy them now. So, uh, you know, the last 12 to 18 months, we've really gotten serious about that. We've started bringing a lot of passive investors in our deal and starting to utilize the syndication structure. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it all spurred from just finding great deals and using the Burr model and, uh, you know, just yeah. creating that big snowball. All right. So real quick. So you started... You had this job for three days. You quit the job. You decided you wanted to go into real estate without owning a prop. Which you bought one property before that, right? I was up to three. I think I owned like nine units or so. Yeah. Okay, got it. So, how were you able to fund marketing and uh, you know? Because I mean, I'm sure with with three properties, you can make a little bit of money. But how are you really funding your your marketing and your targeted direct you know direct mail and direct email, whatever you're doing? How are you able to fund this to, to lock up these larger deals? Yeah, so when I quit the job, I was under contract on deal number four, which was a, a three-unit deal in Manchester, and I had you know, nine units before that. And um, you know, just needed money, so I sold one of the properties I owned. <laughs> and uh, you know, this is an entirely separate tangent, but I've never been afraid to sell properties. Like, yeah. I've never been married to the, to the idea of keeping that passive income. You know, so many people, they don't want to give up that passive income, but, you know, and they give up the empire for the little pot of gold because they don't want to give, you know, they don't want to, oh, you know, a few hundred dollars a month, it's nice, it's dependable. I was like, no, I need all the money that's tied up in equity there so I can go do marketing, right? And so that I can pay my rent. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it sold one, right? That brought some cash back into the quote unquote business, right? It was just me. And uh, then I started investing a little bit in marketing, but, but, but to be honest, most of my deals didn't come from direct mail or paid marketing. They came from prospecting, right? I was mm-hmm. emailing owners, I was calling owners. Mm-hmm. And I was just really, really pounding the network and telling everyone, hey, this is what I'm looking for if you yeah. don't have anyone that's selling, right? So a lot of my deals are coming through relationships and prospecting and direct mail supplemented that, you know, probably helped with the brand awareness a little bit. It brought yeah. a deal here and there, but, um, but for me, I was like, you know, I'd, I'd buy two deals, I'd sell one. Then I'd buy three deals and I'd sell one. Then I'd buy four deals, maybe sell two, right? And the deals I was buying were a little bit bigger than the ones I was selling. And, and in aggregate, the portfolio grew. But I knew I had to keep, you know, I had to buy a deal, create value, create equity. And every once in a while, I had to sell, right? You know, I'd try and refinance as many as I could. But I knew I had to sell some, right? Because I needed access to that cash. Yep. Cash sitting in equity, earning you, you know, 8% return on your equity from the cash flow can be better utilized to grow your business in a forward-looking fashion. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. So a lot of people look at, you know, a return on the money you put into a property. So let's say, you know, you have to put $100,000 into a property. What's that going to get me on a return based on that money? But what a lot of people don't look at is, all right, what is, when you go and rehab that property and you improve the value, and now you have, let's say, 200 grand in equity, what are you returning on that equity portion of it? And if you can take that money and go earn more somewhere else, it probably makes sense to sell that property, right? And so I'm curious, is that how you determine, well, besides the fact that you might need some cash at some point, but when you're looking to, when you're looking and analyzing your portfolio on, hey, maybe it's time to sell this property, what are you looking at? Is it a return on that equity? Is it just, is it just not performing as well as you thought? How do you go about that? So from a financial analysis standpoint, you're absolutely right. Return on equity is the metric, right? That's the most critical metric that we can evaluate. And, you know, there's there's a whole other conversation about what's your goal in doing all of this, right? Yeah. Some people's goal is they want to go buy a duplex every year for five, <laughs> 10 years, and then they can yeah. use that to retire. My goal was like, I need to be, I need to, I want to grow a portfolio now. Like I want to do this yesterday, right? So mm-hmm. I knew that I had to be maniacal about the, the velocity of money concept. I had, to buy the, I had to buy a good deal so I didn't bring a lot of my own money. I had to create the value, and then I either had to refi to get my cash or I had to sell it. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, usually once you're done with your value add process, right, these small multifamily deals that take six, nine months, you're, you're, you're done with the deal, you've done your renovations, you're all into this project for 500 grand and now it's worth 650. And, you know, maybe you already had some equity as well. So now you've got, call it $200,000 in equity in a property that's now spitting out, you know, with, and if you're really being honest with your fundamental analysis and yeah. taking money out for CapEx and all of that, you know, and, and, you're, and you're really being honest with what it's going to need in the future, maybe it's bringing back, I don't know, 10 grand a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yeah, that's great, right? And most people don't want to give up that 10 grand because they really like the feeling of that coming in, right? And, and oftentimes they don't know what to go do with the money if they were to sell it. So if that's your situation, yeah, maybe you hold on to it, right? If you don't have anywhere to put it. But for me, I always had opportunities to put it in, right? So I'm like, do I want to earn 5% on this? Maybe it's making 15 grand a year. Do I want to earn 7.5% on my equity? No, like I need to earn 50% on my money to get to where I got to go. And this is not Mm -hmm. even remotely in that ballpark. Mm -hmm. So that's the financial analysis part. And then the other piece of it is, do I see this as a property that I want to own long term? And honestly, if you have a portfolio and you're looking at your portfolio, I bet you there's a, a large segment of properties you're like, ah, I don't see myself owning that for a long time. You know, maybe it's yeah. too small. Maybe it's not in an area that you like. Maybe it's not a, uh, you know, maybe there's some big ticket capex. You know, maybe you're gonna have to replace the roof in a couple of years, and you're kind of dreading that. So that's that's the emotional question. You know, that's kind of the emotional part of it. Does this fit into my long-term vision? And um, and then the other piece is you know the financial analysis, which you know challenge for everyone listening to this podcast. Go sit down. Look at what you own a property. Look at what the market value is. Look at what you could net if you sold it. Be honest with yourself about what it brings in. Is that really a good return? Are you happy with that return? And you know, it doesn't account debt pay down, and it doesn't really account you know maybe future cap rate compression, which you know basically just a fancy way of saying prices going up. But if I can make more money today with that money, and the and the most profitable activity and action an investor can take is finding a really good deal below market value and buying it. That is the activity that makes the money, right? So I want to go take my money out, put it into a deal where I just bought, you know, I just bought it at 700 and it's worth 850 the day that I close. I've just doubled my money the day that I close. That is much more profitable than leaving it sitting, you know, in another deal. Yeah, I 100% agree. And you're a huge proponent of this. I see it on social media. You're, You're big on social media and posting this kind of stuff. And it's, you know, why are people afraid to sell? Right. And so when I first started investing, I was, I was, you know, my thought process was, all right, well, I'm just going to accumulate all these properties and I'm never going to sell them. Right. Why, why would I ever sell them? But then if your, if your model in your mindset is scale, you can't get stuck holding onto a property making you eight or 10%. It, it's just not, it's not uh, realistic if you're trying to scale. You can use that 100, 200 grand, whatever it is, to go buy something that's going to make you an infinite return when you pull that money back out of a burr. Right. Um, yeah, so I just think I think it's really interesting. I, I I like your mindset on this and how you, you know, how you go about running and scaling your business um, with with selling properties because I, I don't think a lot of people look at it that way. Um, yeah, when you're starting out, you just want you want to you like the idea of playing monopoly, right? You want to own a lot of property, and then you realize yeah. that that's not financially the best decision, oftentimes, mm-hmm. right? And this mm-hmm. is all this is all with the asterisk that's it depends on what your goals are. If you love your job. If you don't want to be stressed out about having to go out there and find more deals and do this direct yeah. to seller stuff and you just want to go buy a duplex off the MLS every year, perfect. Like that's that's great, right? And for a lot of for the vast majority of real estate investors, that's that's typically what the strategy is, right? They yeah. want to supplement their retirement. For me, I was like, no, I want to build a business, right? I want overhead. Mm-hmm. I wanna I wanna at some point I wanna hire a staff. Like I want to get to a thousand, two thousand units, right? And uh, yeah. you don't get there by holding small multifamily properties. No. You need to use that to make the money to go up and buy the bigger stuff. Yeah, agreed, agreed. All right, so so with all that said, what do you? What's going on right now? What what does a business look like today? 
Yeah, so right now, I mean, we own a couple hundred units up in New Hampshire. Um, you know, we're always buying and selling up there, right? We have a great operation. We're vertically integrated. We have a property management company. It's, you know, it's a well-oiled machine. Um, we own about 150 units down in Florida, and those are all joint venture deals. So I don't personally own all of those. You know, I have a couple of partners and some investors. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to just keep buying in those two markets. Um, you know, at some point we might, you know, really intentionally expand into a third uh, in terms of when I say intentionally expand, I mean, we're going to start expending resources as it relates to marketing, trying to find deals, you know, networking with brokers, other investors, and building out the infrastructure to be the main operator. Um, sometimes I work on other deals that other people have because they need help raising capital and I know and I trust them. I like them. I know that it's a yeah. good deal. So we'll partner in that capacity. But in terms of deals that we operate and we find, those are our two main markets, right? And um, I'm spending a lot more time building out the capital side of our business because personally, I, I get a reward when somebody participates in our deal, you know, invest 25, 50, 75 grand, and they do really well financially, right? That's, there's a, yep. an element of reward and it helps to fuel the growth of our business. So it's a, the definition of a win-win. So we're starting to put together some creative structures. Um, you know, I don't know when this, when this episode will go live, but we're about to, to launch a, you know, an open-ended fund um, to go buy real estate you know it's going to be a 506c so we can advertise it and people can come in and just ride shotgun on the deals that we do direct to seller and um and they can gain exposure to multifamily. you know in new hampshire for example with that strategy and so for me i'd like to 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 focus on larger deals because it's more scalable and it's a slightly better use of my time and and everyone in my team's time um but, you know, it's really hard to turn away good deals, even if they're smaller. So we're going to build yeah. a medium to execute on those deals while also trying to more actively focus on the 50, the 60, the 70 plus unit assets. Okay. So to do this, you've got to have a team in place, right? So what is it? What does the team look like right now? I mean, you, you can't be doing a six unit, an eight unit, a 10 unit, a hundred unit. Like you can't be doing it all at once by yourself, right? So you, you've got to have some sort of integrated team here. So what does it look like right now? So we have, you know, full-fledged property management team, um, you know, property manager, maintenance guys, leasing agents, all that stuff. Um, I am absolutely stretched to my gills in the (laughs) investment side of the business right now, right? And I'm actually trying to make a W-2 salaried hire and, you know, kind of an operations role to help with asset management, to help transaction coordinate, to help a lot of this stuff, right? Because that's where the effort comes in is transaction coordinating all these smaller deals is like just, it's just you know, death by a million documents. And it takes so much time to do that. So for me right now, that's a hire I'm looking to make. I have somebody part-time helping me out with that right now. I have, you know, a couple of VAs helping me out with all the content stuff that I do. Um, And, you know, at the moment, that is my bottleneck is people in my organization, right? I need to, I need to start building a payroll, true W2 salaried payroll, which Mm -hmm. I'm in the process of doing right now. And um, like the last number of months I've been stretched and now I'm like at the breaking point. So I brought in somebody part-time to alleviate that constraint in the short term. But that is the operational complexity that comes with focusing on, or not focusing on, but just being willing to do smaller deals is it's just the same amount of documents, same amount, you know, it's still a weekly call with a property management company. And um, it's not as scalable, but for us, we know we can, we do those deals in our sleep. And if we, if, if I don't have to personally pour my own capital into those deals, and I can offer a really attractive investment opportunity to investors while also being able to capitalize on those deals, then it's a bit of a win. So it's just a sure. matter of we need to get some payroll in and, and then we can start, you know. Yeah, 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 because I mean, it's ultimately the same amount of work to buy a three family it is to buy a 15, 20, 30 unit, right? I mean, I yes. mean, there's more, it's, it's it more is. complex, obviously, right? 
Um, but you, it's the same steps, right? You find the property, you lock up the property, you go through all the documents, you get all the you get the money to close it, and then you manage it, right? So it's it's essentially the same, um, but the benefit of going larger clearly outweighs the smaller ones, right? So especially as you start doing these, the more units under a roof or the more units in general, it just starts to look a lot better. The price per unit starts to shrink. The price per rent starts to increase. It's, it's I mean, shrink, it's great. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm fully on board with that. And actually the last time we spoke, we were talking about hiring because I was doing everything myself. Since the last time we spoke, I've got two BAs and I actually just hired a full-time assistant and bookkeeper as well, W2, because I was also at my breaking point, right? Like. We've got seven or eight transactions just this month, and it's, it's virtually impossible for me to do all that, right? You can't and keep so up I, with that, yeah. no, you can't keep up with it, dude. I showed up to the closing table the other day, and I forgot to get insurance on a property, so I had to call my insurance agent while I'm at the closing table and have them buying cover. It's just like stuff like that is not sustainable to run a successful business. And so, let's talk about hiring real quick. When, so, I, I think this is huge because a lot of people are are really hesitant to hire. Because, for, for example, like. All right, let's say you're making a decent amount of money, but you're spending a lot of it on putting on down payments, on rehab. You know, there's not a whole lot sitting there left over. How, how do you pay for these people? Right? How, how do you pay for employees? And when is that the right time? So let's let's jump in. So, so I like yeah, your yeah. thoughts I'll, on I'll this. I'll share, you know, I'll touch on a couple of those too. I mean, you know, it's, and let me, you know, big asterisk, grain of salt announcement here. Um, I am not an expert at hiring internally, right? <laughs> None of us so, are. <laughs> so, so, so take all of this with a grain of salt. I'm going to pair it. You know, I'm going to be the parrot for the people that have told me what to do that I trust. So I'll still bring some value in that respect. But I can also touch on some other key elements of what you're describing. So first of all, people that are in real estate think they're investors, not business owners. You know, that's a broad statement. A lot of most people think they're investors, not business owners. Everyone's a business owner that's in real estate investing. So flip that script in your mind and understand that to grow a business, people need people. So fundamentally, that's the 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 mindset shift that has to occur for you to grow a real estate business beyond what you're capable of doing, right? 20, 30, 40, 50 units. If you self-manage is your max. If you have third party, maybe you get to 100. But beyond that, it's going to get really tough to grow the business. So here's what I do, right? I, I have, you know, we got to pay for this somehow. So we sell properties. We have to be willing to sell to bring cash back in the business. The second thing is we structure our deals with some small fees, right? We're not a big fee shop. We, we charge an acquisition fee on some deals. If we're raising capital to do those deals to compensate us for the absurd amount of work that goes into getting that deal into contract for our investors. Sure. Um, you know, but again, we don't even charge a lot of fees. We don't charge asset management fees or disposition fees or capital transaction fees or any of that other stuff that most people charge. I just charge an acquisition fee just because we get, you know, you got to make that cash register ring a little bit in your real estate business if you're raising capital, right? That's the caveat here. Or if you're doing it yourself, create an LLC for that property, fund that LLC, pay yourself a fee, right? You got to start getting in the habit of treating this like a business. Yep. So. That, those are the two call it revenue generators, right? And then every once in a while you get a cash out refi and you get these lump sums of money coming back. That's how you pay for this stuff, right? You put aside a year's worth of salary as runway and you don't touch that. You don't invest that in a deal. You don't put it down as earnest yeah. money deposit. That's yeah. your, call it your payroll. So, so that's how you financially make this work. You don't go out there and try and pull it from your cash flow and, and you know, that's just yeah. you're redlining your car is the hypothetical analogy there. So, that's kind of step one, paying for this. Now two, there's two different types of hires you can make. You can make an internal hire, you know, W2 or 1099, that's full-time with your business or part-time with your business. You have to manage them. You are the one that trains them. If you suck at management training and, le and as, as a leader, they will suffer. And that's, just, that's where I'm spending all of my professional development right now is trying to get better at that because I know that's the next stage of what I have to be good at. I'm no longer a deal guy. 
I am in a sense, but now I have to be a really good manager and leader and I have to be yeah. a good operator of a business, right? There's a difference there. The other type of hire is external. You can outsource things, right? So some examples of things you can outsource. You can outsource um, all, you know, finding banks to lend you money, right? You can hire a mortgage broker and you're gonna pay them. They're gonna go do that for you. They're gonna source debt for you, right? And they're gonna be better at it than you probably are. Yep. That's something that you should do. Two, you obviously can hire a real estate broker to sell your properties, right? That's an obvious one. Three, property management company, that's an obvious one. Then where it starts to get a little bit more unique is you know you can do insurance brokers. They take that off your plate. Again, use an insurance broker. Don't try and do this yourself. Um, you can hire a third party bookkeeper. Uh, maybe you don't have a full internal need for a bookkeeper. I have a book, bookkeeping service. They probably work eight to 10 hours a week. They bill me their time. Yes, it's more expensive than an internal person, but I don't have to spend any of my brain power on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, you know, you can outsource all, you can outsource your direct mail. You can outsource, you know, there's a, there's a company called Call Porter, right? Um, yeah. Ryan Dossie, very successful direct to seller real estate investor. They take your calls for you, right? In terms of your inbound calls, and then they give you the summaries. So if you start to look at all these different activities, you can probably find vendors that can do a lot of this stuff for you, right? Don't, don't, GC your own construction projects. Hire you know a GC yeah. to do that. You shouldn't be yeah. subbing out the paint, the flooring, the electrical. That's going to drive you insane. So, the first thing you want to do is you want to max out all of the vendors that you can utilize, all the third-party vendors to to buy your time back. Yes, they're going to charge you seventy-five bucks an hour. Your time's worth more than that. If you're a real estate investor trying to grow a business, you can't do seventy-five dollar per hour tasks. You have to do one hundred and fifty, yeah. two hundred dollar hour tasks. Yep. So you more. get all that I stuff agree. off your plate, and then whenever what's what's left, which is typically coordinating transactions it's asset management it's um you know kind of you know it's a lot of content stuff if you have investors it's investor relations it's uh doing all of that stuff that's when you start to bring in a full-time internal individual which is exactly where i'm at right now and i should have mm -hmm. done this a year ago but yeah. i just said oh, i'll work 80 hours a week because i suck at hiring and managing and now i'm like i just need to get better at this i need to be able to to identify and hire the, the right people and mm -hmm. from a hiring standpoint and then i'll shut up after this but from a hiring standpoint you can go two routes. You can go the build it route or you can buy it. Um, build it is you hire someone that doesn't necessarily have the skill set yet, but they're a little bit cheaper and you can train them up. And that's gonna be much more time intensive. You're gonna need the skill sets as a manager to bring them up to speed. Or you can go the buy it route where you have the guy who's already winning the gold medal for the other team and now he's just gonna come and win it for your team. So you gotta pay up for that person, but it's less, less work from a training standpoint you still have to manage them you still have to set the vision and lead but that it's just two different strategies right do you want to go less expensive and train and build and cultivate or do you want to just bring in somebody that can already do it and they just plug them into your operation yeah. i'm trying to go the second route i'd rather yeah. overpay because i have enough self-awareness to realize i'm not a good enough trainer to sit down and get in a zoom call for two hours you know on a monday and this is how we do this i want you to come in and tell me what to do like I have my own process, we'll collaborate on it, but then I want to set you loose in my business and, and give you autonomy and, and we'll chat. So I'll summarize the whole hiring conversation with that specific piece of it, yeah. but get everything out to vendors and third parties and then start to bring stuff in house. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I, I think that's great advice. I think everybody who's at the point where it's, hey, maybe is it time to hire? Should go back and listen to that last like three or four minute spiel right there because you've gone through it. I've gone through it. A lot of investors we know have gone through it. And I don't think anybody has ever regretted hiring somebody. It may not have went well, right? But they learned yes. from it. And you're able to offset some of your tasks and allow you to spend more time on that $10,000 an hour task instead of doing the, the nitty gritty things like lining up an insurance, right? Like that that should be something that you pay somebody to do. All you do is sign the documents, right? That, 
And I, Dude, uh, finding I great real agree. estate deals is easy comparatively <laughs> to effectively hiring, leading, and managing. That, I, agree. I agree. That's the hard part. The easy part is getting a guy to sell you a property for 400 grand that's worth five. That's right. much easier than like getting somebody in your organization that is a true value add A player. You can hire anyone and you know your business can grow and they could be a C plus B player and you know they do their job. You probably have to spend a little <laughs> too much time managing them. But like, you know, and this is <laughs> now you're gonna get a window into my crazy brain. But like in real estate, we're always looking for inefficiency, right? We want the inefficient markets, the inefficient pricing, the you know, mom yep. and pop sellers that don't know what they have. Hiring is the same thing, and it's there's more inefficiency in human capital, right, than anything else in terms yeah. of you hire someone that's an A player and you're paying them like a B plus, that's creating so much more value on the dollars that you're investing into that person than, you know, a, a real estate deal, even if you're finding an insane one, right? So, but, but it's much harder to identify that person and it requires a completely different skill set than being a good deal guy or a marketer or a sales guy or a finance guy. Like, yeah. So, you know, I think um, that's not to discourage people because a lot of people are struggling to find off-market deals, right? Nail that down. Well, it's just a different level, right? It's a different level, it's right? Just, if if you're starting, if you're starting, finding deals is probably the most important thing you can do, at least in my mind and, and I'm By sure far. for you as well, right? If you can find the deal, everything else will fall into place. But after you've mastered that, it becomes, okay, I need to become the leader here and turn this into a, a functioning business instead of me going out finding all the deals um, yeah. because that'll get put on autopilot eventually. Um, all right, so with all that said, um, real quick, you said you had some VAs. So they, are they doing social media for you and stuff like that? or what? Yeah. Editing podcasts, creating yeah. social media graphics, creating social media you know videos. Um, yeah. I've gone through a couple. It's Again, it's hard. It's, you know, it's, it's hard. really yeah. hard to manage. I, whew, I, I, I'm at the point where I've worked with a lot of VAs. I, I think VAs are great. They, they oftentimes have comparable skill sets to folks you can hire within the yeah. States. Uh, it's much more economical. But again, you still have to, you still have to show up and train, right? Even if like, you don't even know what you're training for, like you still have to kind of set the vision. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a struggle. It's, it's, you have to be on the phone a couple times a week, right? To check in. And you know, yeah. unless you have a true rock star, autonomous individual that literally does not need guidance, you have to, you have to, you know, you gotta, you gotta be there, right? So, yeah. um, so for me, that's the struggle, right? I just want to talk on Monday. I just want you to, to, to here's just the objective is we just do it right and it's so hard to get to that place so yeah. but that's yeah. what they're doing they're doing a lot of social media stuff for me you know i had a yeah. um you know a more general kind of purpose va that was helping me with some internal projects and helping me to do a lot of that stuff but yeah um and it's you know immensely helpful and i think working with a va is hiring on tra with training wheels very low risk from a monetary standpoint you can oh, start sure. part time you can four, just four or five bucks an hour right i mean it, yeah like Four, I'm paying five, my six, guy yeah. seven fifty because he's yeah. got to use a great video editor, yeah. um, you know, and it's like two bucks. It's two bucks an hour. Like I just, you know, I'll pay you a little bit more and you'll just stick with yeah. me for a while. Yep. Um, but for me, it's 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 uh, it's just like all right, here's your joint, you know, here's your junior varsity training program for for hiring. So um, mm -hmm. that's how I look at it. And for really autonomous work or uh, not autonomous, um, you know, repetitive and kind of structured and re you know, just work that's being done on, a, on an ongoing basis that you can easily put together a system for, VAs are great. Yeah. And um, you know, I think everyone should just hire one, even part-time, you know, spend a few hundred dollars, yep. $400, $500 a month on a VA. If you can't afford it, like figure out a way to afford it because getting the reps in with somebody in your organization it's, it's going to feel good to just throw stuff in a different direction other than knowing you literally have to do everything yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I've got one right now who's doing 
a good amount of cold calling, entering into the CRM, managing the CRM. Basically, I don't do anything on my CRM anymore, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And she actually, which is great, is I basically said, hey, I want to get on a bunch of podcasts, right? So the next day, she she emailed like 13 different podcasts. I got on four podcasts. Like, and I didn't have to do the work. I don't have to go find the people, find the hosts, and email them. Done, right? And then the other task she did was um, she interviewed social media managers because I wanted to start getting that off the ground. So she went out and found a bunch of VAs and interviewed them all. And she's like, okay, I've, I've narrowed it down to two. I set you up for meetings on Tuesday, right? And it's just little things like that at a very small monetary amount that brings so much value. Um, so much value. Yeah. So, all right. So let's let's move into what is the future for Axel's business here? Yeah. So, you know, I think then if we call the future, you know, next next 12 months and then I'll do maybe like next next 36 months, three years. Next 12 months is, um, you know, from a personal standpoint and an organizational standpoint, not real estate. I want two salaried folks in the business that are really making my life easier so I can focus on larger deals in capital. Those are the two activities that drive all of the income for a real estate investor and a real estate business owner. So those are the two that I want to spend time on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to find a great operations person to, to really spearhead operations. And then, you know, somebody else, maybe it's an asset manager um, or some kind of investor relations person. Maybe it's more of an executive assistant role. But those are the two folks that I want to hire for in the next 12 months. And then from a real estate standpoint, um, you know, we're on track to buy, I don't know, maybe like 180, 200 units this year. Um, I want to buy the same amount of units this next year, but I want those deals to be higher quality. You know, mm-hmm. door count is relevant. Um, the sooner everyone embraces that fact, the better. It's not about how many doors you have. It's about the quality of your doors and the pricing of the doors that you're buying. Yeah. I want to buy more expensive doors and nicer areas. I want to buy, um, you know, instead of buying 200 units at 75K a piece, I'd rather buy 150 units at 100K a piece or even better, 100 units at 200 grand a door. So. I want to tighten up our operations and our criteria a little bit so that we're buying in great areas at pricing that makes sense, but, but allows us to, you know, there's more value to be created in larger deals. So that's kind of a real estate goal in the short term. The next three years, um, and, you know, this is kind of a, a really big, you know, audacious one, but I want a thousand investors to have participated in our opportunities, passive investors at any level of investment. So, you know, we obviously need to build out the deal flow to support that kind of investor interest. So, you know, we'll, we'll work that out and figure that out um, and establish the relationships to do that. I think if I get myself out of the business, even more so than I already am, that's extremely achievable because investor interest in your deals compounds. If you have four investors in your first one and you execute really well, communicate really well and provide a great experience, they're likely gonna refer you and yep. maybe you get eight on the next one and yep. then they're likely going to refer you and maybe you get 16 on the next one. So in three years, I'd like to get to a thousand, you know, it's probably not going to happen, but who cares? Maybe I get to 700. So it's a huge well, what's your game plan to do that? Is it social media? Is it newsletters? Is it, so how do you plan on getting your business's name out there? Cause this is, I'm really curious on this because I've, you know, I've pulled in a bunch of investors as well, but I've, I found it actually pretty difficult to, it's extremely challenging. Yeah. yeah very challenging investors. People yeah. think finding people, you know, there's the adage of like, oh, if you find the deal, the money will come. No, it just won't. So, you know, it's it's way easier to find deals than it is to find capital. Um, and when I say capital, I mean retail capital that you are personally raising, not a partner yeah. that brings the money and takes yep. a part of your deal. So those are two different, those are two distinctions to make. You can find a great deal and find a guy who has the money and then you're going to share in the upside. 
But if you want to be finding deals and raising the money through your network, that is very challenging to do. So the route that I'm going to go is it's all personal brand oriented. So I want to grow the podcast. I want to grow the social media following. Um, that is what drives a lot of the yeah. original investor interest. That's what gets you from zero to, to 15, zero to 20 investors. And I'm, that's where I'm at right now. You know, 20 people kind of regularly participate in our deals. Um, but the, you know, the other thing is I want to start going full cycle on a lot of the deals that I've already bought. So we're selling two deals right now that were, you know, deals we raised for a year ago. We're going to be refinancing a portfolio soon and getting a big chunk of capital back to some investors in a project we have up in Manchester and, um, stacking those big wins, you know, distributions are nice for an investor, but be like, Ooh, I just got a big portion yeah. of my principal principal yeah. back or we went full cycle and I'm seeing how much money I made. That's what really spurs referrals. So social media gets you to like a hundred, right? That gets you, that gets that snowball going. And then consistent production and execution, that's what rolls that snowball down the hill. So yeah. um, to get to that hundred, you know, it's all social media, it's all personal branding. It's probably a little bit of, you know, direct outreach and really starting to build out that infrastructure. Um, a newsletter is another thing that, you know, I'm starting to get a little bit more consistent with now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Something that I yeah. want to do is probably start offering some online courses for active real estate investors and maybe like a community, right? And you know, I don't want to be a full-blown guru who's out there making that his whole business, but yeah. I yeah. think I can provide a lot of value through an online, online course format with an associated networking group. And that yeah. just builds, you know, that rise, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, right? So that builds the overall brand recognition, builds my network, brings more people into the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And eventually, the more people that know you and are seeing your opportunities, you just organically start to raise some more money. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I think no, those I think are the strategies. Awesome. And it's hard to really yeah. nail it down beyond that, right? I just, you know, I'm not a big yeah. reaching out to that guy, asking him to invest. I'm a yeah. big build the audience and the money will come. Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, it's been fun watching you grow so far. So I'm, I'm excited to keep watching it and uh, be a part of it. Um, we're about three quarters of the way down here. I just want to touch up on... Um, something that I know you're very good at and if not the best at it uh, that I know and that's funding and basically creative financing uh, to take down deals and so I know you've got a couple of different strategies that you use uh, I think it would be great for the audience to hear um, how, you, how you structure these deals I mean I know they're all different some seller finance private money blah 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 let's get into let's give maybe like give two or three examples of deals that you've done using creative financing that the audience can almost like mimic um, to a sense. Sure. I'll, I'll give you three and maybe if we have time, I can give you a fourth. But uh, right. number one is um, leveraging private capital uh, in terms of lending on the buy side of a deal. And I'm going to just say the but before you can use any of the strategies that I'm about to get into, the fundamental constant is the deal has to be good. You have to be getting a discounted deal. You can't pay market for a deal and then do any of this stuff. So that's to be, you know, assume that, right? We're buying deals at 20, 25% below market value day one, yep. and then we can start to do all this stuff. So, you know, the first, um, the first strategy I like to use is just higher loan to value on the buy side to minimize bringing, you know, minimizing the amount of cash I got to bring. Yep. So hypothetically speaking, you know, let's say you got a, you're paying $400,000 for a property. It's worth 500 grand. You're buying at 20% below market value. Uh, if you go to a bank, they're only going to give you 300 because they're only going to give you 75% loan to your purchase price. They don't care what it's worth right now. That's that, you know, then that doesn't matter. That's not going to change what they'll give you, right? In a traditional bank scenario. But let's say you go out to a to a private lender, you're going to pay a little bit more in interest, but oftentimes it's worth it. 
to you know, and maybe he's willing to lend you, she's willing to lend you 375, 385, or 400, the whole darn thing. Most people think, oh, you're over leveraged. Well, no, because now I have a $400,000 mortgage, which is my purchase price, on a $500,000 property. That's 80% loan which to value. Which is 80%, right? Yep, yep, exactly. So we're back to where a bank would have, what a bank could, probably would have given yeah, me if I paid If you bought it for market, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, you can do some stuff to support that, right? Go get a desktop appraisal, go get a broker price opinion, say, hey, this third party said this is worth 500. Yeah. This is why you're, you know, you know, and they're, maybe they want to see some skin in the game, so they give you 385 or something, but you're, you're bringing less money to the deal. Now, that's number one. Number two, uh, utilize seller credits. Um, seller credits are so powerful and it just, you know, it's such a great way to reduce the amount of money you bring to closing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. again, same scenario. Let's say you're buying a property for 400K that's worth 500. Um, you go to the bank, they're gonna give you 300, right? You gotta bring 100 grand down. Or you can structure the deal in a way that you do, you, you tell the seller, I'm gonna give you 450K, um, but I want 50 grand as a credit at closing to reduce my cash out of pocket. So you're yeah. gonna walk away with 400. And maybe he's gotta pay a little bit more in transfer taxes. So maybe you gotta pay him 405, right? Or something like that. But for example's sake, let's just say, I'm gonna give you 450. You're gonna give me 50 at closing as a credit against everything I gotta bring. And you're gonna walk away with the same as if I just paid you 400. So now let's do, do some quick mental math here, right? So if you're going to do it in the first scenario, you under contract for four, bank gives you three, you bring a hundred. Now, if we do this scenario, bank's going to give me 75% of 450, right? Which is, I don't know, 332 or yeah, I don't yeah. know, three, something yeah, like something that. Something around there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to have to bring like 112, five, 112,500 to closing in this scenario, but I'm getting this $50,000 credit from the seller. So now I only have to bring 62,500, right? Mm -hmm. That's a great way to reduce your cash out of pocket. Now the asterisk here are, you gotta get the lender on board. They have to be okay with this. Yep. Um, you're gonna have to you know, have a conversation with the seller about it. But that's a, that's a big example. Maybe you do 420 with 20 grand back, right? And that makes everybody happy and comfortable. But just understanding that you can increase the purchase price and you can get some back, right? Property has to appraise. That's why it's gotta be a good deal. Then that yeah. ties back into the first comment. Now, number three is utilizing second mortgages. So again, gotta be a great deal. You buy the property for four, it's worth five. You go get your $300,000 bank financing and then you go get a $50,000 second mortgage, for example. And now you're only 75% loan to value or whatever that is, right? You're still not over leveraged because you're buying it at a discount day one. Yeah. So second mortgages are great. You know, pay a private investor eight, nine, ten, eleven percent. You know, whatever you got to pay. Um, again, you have to get the first position lender on board. So there's a, there's a hurdle there, but fundamentally, this is a strategy that you can use. And I'll give you one more, just quickly. And this is for <laughs> folks that want to raise capital from partners. Um, you can put together a deal. Let's say, you know, I keep using this example, so I'll keep rolling. You got this four hundred thousand dollar deal. You get your three hundred grand from the bank. You don't want to go the second mortgage route. You know, there's no seller credit. There's no opportunity that you don't, you don't have a lender in your network that's going to give you a big loan. So maybe you go out there and you raise 50 grand, right? Half the down payment from a private investor. Put together an operating agreement, contact an attorney to do this. Um, and you're saying, hey, I'll pay you 12%, you know, preferred return, right? Which is basically a fancy way of saying uh, the first 12% in cash flow that we're distributing from this deal goes to you before I make any money, right? Mm -hmm. So it's similar to debt in that perspective. So you pay them 12%, they don't, they don't have any equity in the deal, but they're participating in the equity part of the capital stack. This is like real estate syndication kind of 101, um, you know, a nice little J, you know, junior varsity way of doing this. 
and then you only have to bring 50 grand, right? And you, when you sell it, you pay off the bank, you pay off your investor plus the 12%, and then you know you own the rest of the deal or whatever proceeds. And then you, so essentially what, you just redo the operating agreement at that point as a buyout? So you buy him out, essentially? With the yeah, so capital, so you write you, you write into the operating yeah. agreement when you close that the first fifty grand that are due from a capital event, which is how it's defined in an operating agreement typically, yeah. goes to the you know the investor. However, your attorney dictates yeah. that terminology. So, and again, huge asterisk here. I'm not an attorney, so go speak <laughs> with an attorney to do this. This is just all conceptual, you know, brainstorming, right? Yeah, but um, no, dude, I think this is genius. This is essentially like, a, a buyout, right? Exactly. It's yeah. second position debt in the form of equity. Yeah. And this is pref equity, right? Preferred equity is a massive funding tool for large real estate investments where you have mm-hmm. 75% as the bank debt, 10% as preferred equity at, you know, you're getting the bank debt at five, you're getting the preferred equity at 10, and then the rest of it is equity brought yeah. by the sponsor, the person yeah. who's doing the deal. And basically as capital flows down the capital stack, right? First, the bank's getting paid, then the, yeah. then the, then the, preferred um, equity is getting paid their required rate of return and then what's less goes to the sponsor yeah. and then same thing when the deal sells or refis banks paid off preferred equities paid off the, uh, yeah. the the investor at the bottom of the capital stack is left with, with whichever left so it's basically you know how you tactically do it is you can either just write it into the operating agreement up front or you can create a mechanism that says hey when you're paid off plus your prefer- the preferred return that you're due you know your capital account is at zero and you're no longer entitled to any preferred return and you're no longer entitled to any capital proceeds because we've satisfied your capital yeah. account, yeah. then everything just you know, spits yeah. back out. So yeah. wow. attorneys could draw this shit up pretty easily. Yeah, yeah, that's genius though. Wow, I think I might try to implement that this year. I, I've never <laughs> done something like that with a, with a buyout like that before. I think that's awesome. Um, all right, man, I don't wanna keep it too much longer. Let's just, um, real quick, um, what is something that, and you know, uh, somebody listening to this, a t- tactical advice that they can do today to get one step closer to becoming a, a multifamily guy like you. Like, how, how do you get to your level? Is it analyze a certain amount of deals? Is it work on finding deals? What's what's one tactical thing that people can take away from this? Wow, that's a really good question because I, I want to say like forty things, but yeah. I think, um, <laughs> you mean just go listen to everything that was already said? <laughs> yeah, go listen to every single one of my podcast episodes and Ryan's podcast episodes. Yeah. Um, Actually, that's a good one. Why don't Why doesn't everybody just go listen to the Multifamily Wealth podcast? Because it's pretty go. much English plug, right? Um, no, I think I think that you know the way I look at this, right? And I'm going to interpret this question for somebody who's newer in the business. They're getting started, okay. right? Maybe they own a deal or a couple of deals, but they haven't really done anything of, they haven't scaled or, or done you know anything big yet. Um, assuming that you really understand your buy criteria and how to underwrite a deal, like that is, that is the equivalent of putting your pants on before you leave your house in the morning. Like if you're gonna be a real estate investor, you have to know the numbers side of the business really well. So get that done, right? But that's kind of like an easy everyone, you know, just get that done. But mm-hmm. the second thing is you need to really, really understand how to find good deals and how to spot the value in deals. And um, if, you're, if you're in a position right now, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, you know, well, I go on the MLS once a week. Yeah. Um, I got these couple of brokers, they send me some deals here and there. You're not, you can't compete, like you're just not gonna compete. Yeah. So you have to go out there, you have to network, you have to understand how to get in front of sellers, if that's a, if something you can do to generate deal flow in your target criteria. And you have to understand how to present offers and communicate well, right? So I think the tactical advice, because I told you what you should do, but how you should do that. You know, this week, the next upcoming week, 
every single day of the week, you should be either speaking with a seller or you should be speaking with an investor that's active in your market. So you need to be building your database of seller contacts and you need to be building your database of industry professionals, brokers, uh, you know, real estate brokers, mortgage brokers, other investors, people that are in the business that are watching deals get transacted. Um, do that once a day if you really want to get going. If you want to get to where you want to go twice as fast, do two a day. Yep. You should have two 30-minute conversations every day with someone that you don't know. Like that's, yeah. that's I, how you get dude, to where you're going. It's a volume. Dude, it's, it's all volume, right? Yep. So you it's do gold. that for it's a gold. month and be amazed at what happens. Yeah, I agree. I, I actually do the same thing. I, I still have a spreadsheet and I put everybody I know on the spreadsheet, whether they're an agent, investor, attorney, whatever they are. And I just have a log of like 150 people that if I – and you know what's great about that is – a deal may come around and you might say, hey, I know this guy's looking for a deal in this town. And then the next thing you know, you link up and who knows, you might have a partnership on, on a, with a partner or, or a lender that you never even knew was possible just because you met them one time. And so I think that's super powerful. All right, man, where can everybody uh, find, more, find out more about you? Sure. So, um, you know, Instagram, multifamily, at Multifamily Wealth Podcast is the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. If you want to get in our email list to see upcoming investment opportunities if you want to partner with us on deals in the future uh, from a passive capacity and you also want to get our really value-packed multifamily Mondays newsletter which I put a lot of time into you can go to aligned rep which is short for aligned real estate partners aligned rep.com slash invest um, and then if you want to shoot me an email you know axel at aligned rep.com all right cool I'll put all that in the uh, in the show notes but all right man this has been fantastic I think everyone's gonna get a lot of uh, great tips and, and tactical advice from this so appreciate you coming on here absolutely man appreciate you having me it's always good uh, it's always good chopping it up with you so hopefully yeah. everybody grabs some value out of this yeah man all right man appreciate it take care thank you